I'm so glad you're joining me. We're thinking together about questions, pondering what is the meaning of life? How do we know if there is a God? How do I become the person that I ought to become? To be able to freely ask absolutely any question is fundamental to uh, flourishing, and wise people have always understood that. That's part of many, many traditions. Unfortunately, sometimes in communities of faith, people feel like to be a person of faith, you're supposed to not ask questions, but actually there's no other way to pursue truth. And a friend of mine used to say, Jesus is the first person who would say, you must follow truth wherever it leads. So when we ask questions, we're really trying to pursue truth. And that's a wonderful thing. I hope you'll reflect on questions today. A number of you have asked questions about the afterlife. So that's what I want to talk about today, mostly. To begin with, there's one other question I have to hit. Several people noticed when I was recording a conversation with Nicole Yunus recently, there was a book behind me about the Beastie Boys and people wanted to know what's up with that. If you do not know, the Beastie Boys, quite famous hip hop group. They were, I think, the third rap group inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. They say that Beastie is an acronym for Boys Entering Anarchistic States of Inner Excellence. Uh, I'm not sure that those are the kind of states that we want to enter into. But the reason that book was behind me is I was recording that particular conversation at the home of my daughter and son-in-law, and it's their book, not my book. Uh, I would have had no idea who we were talking about until those questions came in. So that's enough about that. Uh, three questions, so I got to take them fairly quickly, uh, that have to do with the afterlife. And the first one is, how does somebody know that they are saved if they are saved? Now, when we're talking about the afterlife, we're talking about something that's terribly important, that is increasingly difficult for people to believe in in our day. People often think perhaps science has proven that there is no such thing, that life will end. But of course, nothing like that has been proven. There has been an inner sense, an instinct in the human race that goes way, way back that life does not end in death. Life itself is a miracle that nobody can explain. And so this first question, how can I know that I'm saved, is one that often creates a lot of anxiety for folks. And it's very important to understand what does that word saved means. And it does not simply mean that I have made an arrangement that ensures that I'm in the heaven-bound category after I die. To be saved means to be redeemed, to be reclaimed, to be made whole, to be forgiven, to set on a different track, and it's something that happens now in this moment and that will continue to happen and that will happen fully one day. And the most important thing to know when it comes to being saved is that being saved is something that we trust God for. And you might think about it like this. Oftentimes, at least in a lot of traditions in American religion, we think about being saved as a matter of trusting in a certain arrangement. As long as I believe the right things in an arrangement in what was done on my behalf, they have to let me into heaven when I die. But of course, the difficulty with approaching it like this is then somebody might think that they have trusted Jesus when really they're just trusting an arrangement. It's a little bit like if I'm flying someplace, I might want to know, how do I know that I have a seat reserved on the flight? And in that case, it is a matter of an arrangement. 
I have given them my credit card number. I have made the reservation. I have a confirmation number. They cannot keep me off the flight, okay? That's one kind of question. How do I know a seat is safe for me on that flight? Another question is, how do I know that Nancy will remain married to me? Now, in that case, it's not simply about an arrangement. I can't have a formula or a little set of words where I say, no, I've abided by this, so you have to stay married. What I have to do in that case is trust a person not just trust and arrangement. And many people, when they think about how do I know if I'm saved, understand by that what's the arrangement by which they cannot keep me out of heaven. But what we're invited to do is to trust Jesus. Now, of course, part of what that means is I trust him with my life beyond this death. And I trust him with the forgiveness of my sins. But I trust him with everything else as well. I trust him with how I approach finances and anger and my relationships with other people and how do I have purpose in my life. What I trust is I trust that God will do the best God can do by every person. And that's true for the people that you love the most where you don't know what was their state when they died. We trust God. We don't trust an arrangement. We trust God and that God is the kind of person who will do the best he can by each person. And uh, although the human capacity for self-deception is enormous, and so I always have to be on my guard against that. And God help me to know myself. God is the kind of person who can be trusted with my life and my eternity. And when I ask him to forgive me based on Jesus's love that is revealed most fully on the cross and to give me life beyond death, which is captured in the resurrection, then I trust God will do that. Now, that leads to the second question that came up, which is, if after we die, our souls are going to end up in heaven, why is Jesus going to come back and resurrect everybody? And this notion of heaven and then hell will come to that as well. An afterlife is a very important one. Human consciousness, very wise man once wrote, is structured such that we must have a projected future. We must have a projected future. And we do. And the writers of scriptures join the chorus of wise people throughout history in saying that death will not be the end. And the Bible writers normally use imagery to describe heaven. And it's important to understand that the imagery is pointing to spiritual reality, but it does it in a way that uses imagery that's not literal. So C.S. Lewis writes about this. There's imagery that's used to describe heaven that will involve crowns or harps, or gold, or uh, white robes. And the idea is that um, music is there because we associate music with ecstasy. Crowns are there because they suggest the dignity of persons and the ability to do great work, to have great influence like a king does. Gold is something that does not rust, so there's a permanence and a preciousness to it that we will experience. And White linen suggested in the ancient world that which was not stained, which was not unclean. So then we will uh, no longer have a guilty conscience, no longer bear the weight of regret. Um, but those are all just pictures. And there are they are that which we look forward to. The reason that the Bible talks about resurrection is there's a difference between resurrection and immortality. The ancient Greeks believed that the soul was immortal. And often they would think about the afterlife as a world in which kind of thin, uh, wispy, vapory versions of human beings would have some kind of ongoing existence. 
in the scriptures, the belief in resurrection was something very different. Luce Meads put it like this. Resurrection, redemption is always the redemption of creation. Resurrection means not just that life will go on, but what's wrong will be set right. God loves what he created, including bodies, and so he will resurrect and redeem and save from corruption bodies. And that's what we have to look forward to. It's not just immortality, souls wandering around in heaven. Now, we don't know exactly what things will be like in between our death and Resurrection Day, but when Resurrection Day comes, things will be set right. And then, of course, the other part of the teaching of the afterlife on Scripture is hell. And that was another question. Um, what's your concept of hell? I tried to explain this to a friend, but it's difficult to do. And, of course, hell is a terribly difficult concept. And there are different thoughts of it. Uh, some folks, John Stott, who's a great thinker and Christian, believed that souls would be annihilated upon death if people did not know and live surrendered to God. And that's been one understanding. Uh, other great Christians, George MacDonald, believe that in the end, all would be saved. And there will be these really intriguing passages in scriptures. I was reading 1 Timothy 4 not long ago where Paul says to Timothy, for this reason we put our hope in the living God who is the savior of every human being, especially those who trust. And that's fascinating language. God is the hope of every person. And I love what Andy Stanley said. Somebody asked him about a book by Rob Bell where Rob may in that book be indicating his own belief in universalism, the idea that everybody will be saved. And Andy's comment on that was, well, I sure hope that's true. And I think that... Uh, Sometimes you will listen to Christians or Christian teachers who talk about hell almost as if they hope people end up there. And I think that would be a, a, a horribly unchristian, unjesus like thing to hope. So I hope it's true. I, I have to say for myself, my best sense is that God takes very seriously the decisions that people make. And it's possible for somebody to go on a trajectory where they do not want God. And they do not want God's kind of life. They do not want to live in humility and servanthood. And that, in fact, uh, because of the problem of sin, we all have a bentness in that direction. I do, too. And so there will be images used about hell also. C.S. Lewis uh, writes in The Great Divorce, uh, uh, kind of an imagery picture of hell, and one of the very striking parts of it is that hell ends up in that picture being smaller than a single molecule in our world. Because to reject God and to reject the good is to become very small. Thomas Aquinas said there was kind of a scale of value that the greatest value for human beings is union with the God who created all that is and is a glorious being beyond our imagining. And then the excellence in spirit that would be required for such a union. So the ultimate badness, the ultimate loss for a human being is the loss of that, the loss of God and the loss of all that is good. And we cannot even understand what would happen to a soul if it uh, were to reject all that is good, which is what hell would be. If you look at a hopeless addict, there may be a little picture of it. Uh, a damned soul, Lewis wrote, is very small. And so 
I can hardly imagine what that would be like. And I think for any of us, the afterlife is way beyond our ability to know any but the briefest glimpses of it, except to know that I ought to take my soul very seriously. I ought to take that question of what kind of person am I becoming very seriously for this life and the next. And then ask God for his help and um, trust that he will do the best he can. So there are a few thoughts about the most important questions around what comes after this life. And I want to end with this thought. You can trust that the God that you entrust your eternity to, you can entrust today to. And I'll see you tomorrow.